Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Baseball is perhaps the most traditional of American sports. You know it when you go to your favorite baseball park and sing the Star Spangled Banner or you stand up for the seventh inning stretch. We'll explore how the singing of the Star Spangled Banner became a sports tradition. Here's a hint. It began at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Michael Gibbons of the Babe Ruth Birthplace and Museum in Baltimore has the story. And Michael was in Baltimore when Memorial Stadium came down. He'll share his first-hand memory of that event. The National Hockey League is rolling the dice on Las Vegas. Adrian Dater of the Bleacher Report tells us why it's a good bet. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran introduces us to a baseball stadium built to house one Major League Baseball game only. That game takes place this weekend. But first, Jeff Schmidt is on vacation this week. Here is the stadium's beat. If you were to drive by Miami Sun Life Stadium, you'd find the lights are on at night and the work is taking place around the clock. They're going into the stretch drive on a $400 million renovation plan for the facility, which will leave it looking like a brand new stadium. Sight lines are vastly improved. All of the seating is being replaced and upgraded. Dolphins Vice President Bill Sen is overseeing the project. With a thousand people on site right now, we're we're spending a, an awful lot of money on a daily basis. It's uh, it's approximately a million dollars per day is what we're putting into the facility right now. Sen tells Miami's WFOR Television the project has had some unanticipated bumps in the road. When you open things up, you find things that you didn't know. So you'll find a conduit running in a wall that you demolished that you didn't think you had to do something with. So you end up having to do those sorts of things. So there have been challenges throughout this. What's driving the renovation is the need to compete directly with the HD television experience at home. You have to make it an track. You have to provide the amenities that the guests can have at home. So that's been a big part of our focus is how to make it feel like you're in, in your living room with 80 or 70,000 of your postal friends. There is a significant part of the renovation which will not be completed this year. That's the actual shade canopies. The foundation for those canopies will be laid this year, but the actual roof sections won't be installed until next summer. The city of Santa Clara is giving a unanimous go-ahead on a $6.5 billion development surrounding the new Levi's Stadium there. The development will cover 240 acres and will include a golf course, a dirt bike track, 600,000 square feet of office space, a 300-unit hotel, half a million square feet of retail space, and possibly a Joe Montana-themed restaurant as part of a second phase called City Center. Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin says delays in a new near-downtown baseball stadium are affecting a larger redevelopment project for the near north side. The stadium is worth $60 million, the surrounding development $350 million. 
Ronan expressed his doubts that the current development team can finish the job. No issues like that at the big house on the campus of the University of Michigan. Their spectacular renovation has proven to be very successful for America's largest football stadium. Former Michigan football coach Lloyd Carr tells us why it worked so well. I love the the, the way the press box has been integrated into uh, the luxury seating. And now when we bring the national press here uh, for for all of these games that are covered nationally, we make a statement about uh, the University of Michigan, about Michigan football, and about what that represents. The Michigan Stadium renovation took place over several years, and the stadium remained in use during the renovation. The listed capacity is just under 108,000, all of it in a single-deck configuration, which means it could be expanded. And that's the latest in stadium news. Baseball has a lot of traditions. It's very special. We have the seventh inning stretch. We have the playing of the Star Spangled Banner, the music, all of the aspects of it that make it what it is. And we're going to talk about one of them, that being the Star Spangled Banner and why it is a part of Major League Baseball. And to help us with that story is a gentleman uh, who uh, really knows his stuff, Michael Gibbons, the executive director of the Babe Ruth birthplace and museum in Baltimore, and that is a must-see. Michael, welcome to the program, and I know you have a thousand and one stories about this great game, but we certainly wanted to talk about this special piece of music, what it means, and uh, why it is that we actually see it in baseball as we do today. Well, Bill, thank you for having me on, and uh, yeah, it's I can get right to the uh, the genesis of where all this came from for me. Sure. Here in Baltimore, uh, where Babe Ruth was born in 1895, and I, like you, urge and encourage your listeners to, uh, if they get to Baltimore, to stop on over uh, to the Babe Ruth birthplace because it really is hallowed ground for baseball. It's one of uh, those places, not on the playing field, but like Cooperstown, where um, you know we, we uh, pay homage to uh, – as one of our old sports writers here in Baltimore said, pay homage to the, the greatest game that God ever invented. <laughs> and and uh, a couple of years ago, Baltimore celebrated the uh, 200th anniversary of the writing of the Star Spangled Banner by Francis Scott Key. And it happened, you know, over at Fort McHenry, you know, here in Charm City. And, and so they came to us and they said, look, we're asking, the city did, they came to us and they said, we're asking every cultural attraction in and around town to uh, participate in helping us commemorate the 200th anniversary. And um, I flippantly said to the guy who was, we were meeting with, I said, well, they didn't play baseball in 1814. So what would you have us do? And the, and the guy looked at me and said, figure it out. <laughs> so um, off we went and it dawned on us uh, shortly thereafter that the Star Spangled Banner is played at every baseball game. And, but also, you know, all, all pro sporting events, they're playing the national anthem. And mm-hmm. so why is that? And as the Babe Ruth birthplace museum, did we have something, did Babe Ruth in any way connect to when they started to play the anthem? And so we uh, went off and did our research. We went to the national archives. We went up to Cooperstown. Uh, we uh, went through the Chicago Historical Society trying to find evidence of um, when this the thing started, 
and did it link to Babe Ruth in any way? And we were lucky enough to find that it did. So here's the story. On September 5th, 1918, the Boston Red Sox were in Chicago at Comiskey Park Hmm. to play the Cubs in the first game of the World Series. Why Comiskey? Because it was bigger. It it had a greater seating capacity than Wrigley. And so, um, you know, the the game is set to to go. We found out that, uh, of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson, he's the president, and uh, we are at war. We're in World War I. It's 1918. The season has been shortened. That's why the game is being played September 5th at the first game of the World Series. Um, And Wilson knew that a a bunch of uh, wounded military had come back from Europe and were to be the guests of Major League Baseball at that game. And so he wanted to do something special, and he ordered a military band to attend the game and to figure out the appropriate time to play the Star Spangled Banner to welcome home our wounded troops. So this all occurs. They, They decided to play the song in the seventh inning stretch with the knowledge that fans all stood up in the seventh inning anyway. So it would be kind of a, an appropriate time to honor these, these uh, returning wounded veterans. The military band strikes up the tune. Uh, the crowd really responds to it well. Mm-hmm. And on the mound, warming up in the seventh inning for the Boston Red Sox was Babe Ruth. Oh, wow. So there was our hook. You know, our guy was uh, probably the he and the catcher were the only two people moving while that song was played. You know, Ruth is warming up, but uh, everybody else stood at attention, hands over their hearts, including the players. And it was such a hit that the next day they brought it back again and played it in the seventh inning. And you can read about this in the papers. Uh, then it was po- it was so popular that they took it to Boston for game three of the series at Fenway. And the Red Sox said, well, if you're going to play it, play it before the game. We want you to play it before we start the game, not in the seventh inning stretch. And they did. And that's where it has remained ever since. Our guest is Michael Gibbons, the executive director with the Babe Ruth Birthplace and Museum in Baltimore. Coming up, more with Michael and his unique connection to the demolition of Old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Fascinating story. That's next, right here on Yahoo Sports Radio. We're talking with Michael Gibbons, executive director with the Babe Ruth Birthplace and Museum in Baltimore. Michael shared with us his unique story on how the Star Spangled Banner became part of live sporting events. Michael, I think our listeners would really enjoy learning about something you were involved in a number of years ago, and that involved Baltimore's Memorial Stadium. And we have had visitors on the air who have talked about Memorial Stadium a little bit, but you had a very, very special view of it. Uh, Actually, when they took it down, you were a part of history. Tell us about it and tell us uh, about your own view of it, which was very, very unique. Well, yeah, Memorial Stadium served as home to the Orioles and the Colts. Colts got here in 1953, Baltimore Colts, of course, and the Orioles uh, transferred over from St. Louis, where they were the Browns, uh, for the 1954 season. So from then, 
early 50s up until uh, the Orioles moving to Oriole Park after the 91 season. And then the the, uh, the Ravens, uh, they were the last team to play a, a professional game there, and that was in 1997. They moved downtown to uh, Camden Yards for the 98 season. <clears throat> so a couple of years after the Ravens had left, uh, left Memorial Stadium, the state of Maryland had taken ownership of the property, and uh, it was uh, in a neighborhood north of Baltimore, and um, they had made the determination mm-hmm. to take the stadium down. They wanted to redevelop the property, and uh, and so they did, and uh, you know, over time. But it was a, a project that uh, was, uh, you know, very controversial. A lot of people felt that they should have left it up or at, at least have left up the facade that uh, hung over the grand entranceway to Memorial Stadium. Yes. But the politicians wanted it down. And so they uh, contracted us as museum sports historians to come in and go through that ballpark and find any and everything that would have any kind of historical value. They also asked us to sell off the seats and the bricks. You know, I think every stadium demolition that comes along, fans want the seats and the bricks. Mm -hmm. So we were responsible for that sale, but also for like the uh, the box seat signs, you know, box number 16A. Um, There was a lot of lot of things that were aisle markers, brass aisle markers that that we determined that fans would like to buy them as well, just to have a keepsake from their old ballpark. And, and so the project took about six months and, uh, you know, we did our job. Uh, we, uh, under the left field bleachers, we found the old uh, foul poles uh, that were used for Oreo games. And we found the Baltimore Colts last uh, goalpost. So uh, with the foul poles, we called the Orioles because we are the Orioles museum. And we just thought, well, Let's see if they have any any possible use for this down at Camden Yards at Oriole Park. And so the Orioles said, yeah, give us uh, the shorter of the two foul poles. They were different heights. And uh, they installed that um, in right field at Oriole Park. So if you, if you get to Oriole Park, look at that right field foul pole and know that it came from Memorial Stadium, where it had been employed since 1954. Um, the other foul pole went to Cal Ripken's uh, minor league ball club up in Aberdeen, Maryland, the Ironbirds. So that's where the foul poles ended up. The inscription, um, uh, the dedication of Memorial Stadium that that hung on the wall um, over top of the the main entranceway was taken down and they uh, remounted a portion of it down at uh, Camden Yards. So, you know, that happened. And there was a lot of other, uh, uh, you know, what I'll call memorabilia that uh, we pulled out of there. There was an old Baltimore Colts sideline bench, and we auctioned that off and and actually kept part of it in our collection because we we deemed it historic. So lots of really fun things. But um, the very sad thing for me as a guy who had been to the first Oreo game in 1954, the home opener, uh, as a seven-year-old with my dad, um, I was the last person to stand in the upper deck at Memorial Stadium. Mm-hmm. What what they were doing was they were demolishing the stadium in sections. And so it got down to the point where the only thing standing were, was the area behind home plate, the lower and upper decks. And so 
we were able of uh, one one other fellow and me, a guy who was the president of the Baltimore Colts marching band and had worked with me on this project. I, I said, Johnny, why don't we take one more uh, visit to the upper deck? We took a few pictures and came down and then watched the wrecking ball knock it in. And um, so it was, a, you know, as a sports fan, it was a really sad day. Uh, as a sports historian, it was a curious day because we realized that we had participated in something you know, that's kind of profound. You know, Michael, it's interesting, you being the last person to stand in that upper deck, I would imagine you must have an image. I would never forget that moment. It's like one of those things in life where you say something happened, you say, where was I when that happened? And you never forget it. I would have to think this would be something roughly akin to that. Can you share reaching back and remembering the image, looking out over that baseball field, uh, some of what you felt and some of what you saw? Well, I I tell you, um, it it contributed. That feeling that I had looking out at what I was seeing um, from the upper deck, there was the familiar uh, feeling of being in the upper deck and looking down at either a, an Orioles game or a Colts game. So that was in my mind, right, my mind's eye. Mm-hmm. But what I was looking at, really, in reality, was a large area of torn up turf and, and, uh, you know, and building and construction materials all over the place and a mostly demolished stadium. It was almost all gone except where I was. And um, the impression that I had was it seemed much bigger of a space without the ballpark there. Hmm. It it seemed way bigger. You know, I think ballparks, they become intimate to us, even though they are they're located on a fairly large expanse of land. You would agree. Mm-hmm. It takes it takes a fair amount of land to to put up a major league ballpark or a football stadium, and and so when you take the ballpark away and you're left with a square of land with nothing on it in the middle of a neighborhood, it is big. But there I was looking down, uh, you know, with really conflicting feelings, remembering, uh, you know, the. The, the first game of the 83 playoffs between the White Sox and the Orioles. And I'm sitting directly uh, behind home plate in the upper deck with my father and watching the White Sox beat Mike Boddicker in game one. And, and, uh, and so I've got that feeling. And then I'm looking down at construction and rubble and open space. And I'm still, I'm in this upper deck section that I've been in, you know, for my whole life. And uh, so it was strange, but you're right. I'll never forget it, ever. What a fascinating story. A lot of great memories. Michael, this is a, a really a wonderful journey regarding uh, baseball and uh, the role of the Star-Spangled Banner in it and a number of other little side trips we've taken. Well, Bill, it's been a pleasure being on with you, and uh, I hope we catch up one of these days. And Take care of those cubbies and, and uh, ex-Oriel Jake Arietta out there. <laughs> a pleasure. Michael Givens is the executive director of the Babe Ruth Birthplace and Museum. Now, when we return, Mark Medoran and I will dig into the stories of the week. That's coming up next as we talk shop right here on Yahoo Sports Radio. Time 
to Talk Shop once again, and a happy 4th of July weekend as we welcome in Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website in a celebratory mood. And we remind you that Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Check it out at stadiumsusa.com. Mark, we're going to see a very unusual baseball game this weekend. It's taking place at a brand new baseball facility located at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. The Marlins will be taking on the Braves, and it rekindles the spirit of, if you build it, they will come. Mark, refresh our memories about this baseball park, what it's like, and how it came about. Well, the ballpark at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, is just about completed. Major League Baseball paid to build the project in just four months. They turned an old golf course that it was unused into a Major League quality temporary facility to play one game in front of the military. Mm -hmm. The timetable was very accelerated. They started this project in March, and they're already done with it. It's a temporary 12,500-seat venue. It was designed by Populous, one of the major uh, ballpark and stadium designers in the country. After the game, the facility is going to be modified for softball and recreational use uh, for use of the military on the uh, base. This is the first-ever MLB game at a military installation, as far as we know. The military were given free tickets, so the soldiers and their families all get to go for free. Fort Bragg is the home of the 82nd Airborne Division, so there's quite a few soldiers around, and uh, I'm sure they'll have a full house. By the way, this area of North Carolina has a very strong baseball tradition. Both the Braves and Marlins have minor league affiliates uh, right in the vicinity, so going to be an interesting day at the ballpark on Sunday. The Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland is getting a tremendous amount of exposure during the spring and summer. It started with the NBA playoffs, of course, and that culminated in the NBA championship for the Cavs. Now the Republican National Convention, the party convention, is coming to Cleveland, and that facility is being readied for that, and it begins July the 18th. Mark, how does this work? Well, the Quicken Loans Arena has to do an about-face as the home of the Cleveland Cavaliers <laughs> gets the host the Republican convention. Uh, typically, preparation for a political convention requires about six weeks of work to get it ready. But because of the NBA finals, the conversion work started very late. Workers are preparing an elaborate stage, which will be the focus of the convention when the candidate becomes the nominee for the party. There was some discussion a few months back that the festivities for nomination could be moved to a larger facility outdoors, which was probably going to be the Cleveland Browns Stadium. But the short schedule and um, some other factors uh, made that impossible. So Mm -hmm. previously, the shortest was about five weeks. For those of us that will tune in the convention and you'll see the arena, I'm not sure you'll recognize it as a basketball facility. Let's swing out west. The spotlight is back on the iconic Los Angeles Coliseum, which is adding a new tenant, Mark, in a sense, that is. But what this really is, is what is old is new again. Why don't you introduce us to this brand new tenant, if you will? I will. It's been 37 years since the L.A. Rams took the field at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. (laughs) But history is about to repeat itself. The Rams are returning to L.A. after making St. Louis their home since the 1990s. The Rams played in Anaheim before leaving L.A. They had moved from the Coliseum to Anaheim. Mm -hmm. And uh, now they return to the L.A. Coliseum, age 93, 
for two seasons while the $2.6 billion Cronky World Entertainment and Sports Complex is under construction in Englewood. Uh, Bill, we've talked about the LA Coliseum many times, and you and I could spend the next six weeks talking every show about the history of the Coliseum. Just to touch on some things, two Super Bowls have been played there, including Super Bowl number one. Uh, the Coliseum's also hosted the Olympics. It's currently the home of the USC Trojans, who will share the field with the Rams for the next few seasons. Mm. There is an improvement coming to that Coliseum, paid for by USC, uh, coming up soon. But that's not actually going to start until 2017, at the end of the 2017 football season. So they're kind of playing in the as-is condition here when uh, they take the field in the fall. Uh, the Rams uh, just moved to L.A. as of January. Um, they are happy to be there. They're going to have to put up with the Coliseum as it is now. There are 92,000 seats at the Coliseum, so capacity is not a problem. Mm -hmm. But there are no suites. There's no luxury boxes. And the locker rooms are what you'd call basic. Uh, they're not NFL-quality locker rooms at this point. Mm -hmm. The last NFL game here was in 1994, when the Raiders played here under Al Davis, but then he took his team and went back to Oakland, and there hasn't been an NFL game on this field since that time. So the L.A. Coliseum, I can't wait to see the Rams back there. It brings back a lot of memories of what happened there many, many years ago. You mentioned the Raiders, and right now, of course, they are hunting around for a market if Oakland doesn't work out, and Las Vegas is where the spotlight is for them. They have a real estate agent, I understand, Mark, and they're looking for some land in Las Vegas. What are they looking for, and what kind of success are they having? Well, they're having pretty good success, actually, in finding it, but they haven't made a decision as to where they want to be. The Raiders are looking for a good location and a possible backup location. Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman is stressing the importance of the location. The Raiders are evaluating four possible sites. The most favorable one of these uh, we've discussed before, that's the one on Tropicana Avenue that's owned by UNLV. Mm -hmm. It's 42 acres. It's near the airport. There are some issues there, but it is the prime site, probably the best one if they can overcome the airport issues that go with building a big structure right off the end of the runway. Um, the second site is the former Riviera Hotel site. Remember, they knocked down the Riviera Hotel a few years ago. That site has been earmarked for the Las Vegas Convention Center, but they could shift that around and put that stadium there. It's a very good large site, has a great location, and it would work perfectly for what the Raiders want to do. The third site is called the Rock and Rio Festival Grounds. It's not quite as desirable. The land is very, very pricey there, and there are some ingress and egress problems in getting to the stadium. So I don't think that one's going to make the short list. And the uh, last one is Cashman Field, you know, where the, uh, the AAA ballpark plays. Sure. The AAA team there is thinking of moving to another site in the near future, uh, moving a little further out from uh, Las Vegas. Uh, but that site also has some problems. It's quite far from the Strip. And they want to put the stadium as close to the Strip as possible, thinking they're going to get some uh, tourists going to the games. But they also uh, have some accessibility problems at that site. So I don't think Cashman Field is going to make the shortlist either. So the Raiders have uh, some good possibilities. And uh, based on what's going on the last couple of months, it sure looks like the Raiders could end up in Las Vegas. Each week, we look back at some of the significant happenings in stadium and ballpark history. And Mark, what do you have for us this week? 
Well, this week in 1910, I know you and I both remember it well, Comiskey Park opened <laughs> on the south side of Chicago. Uh, no longer there, unfortunately, um, yeah. where I misspent much of my youth. Yeah, indeed. I sat right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> in 1944, Oriole Park, at that point, was home of the minor league Baltimore Orioles, burns to the ground. The team would move across town to Municipal Stadium, where the crowds were bigger with increased seating capacity. The major leagues took note of the large fan interest in Baltimore, and in 1954, the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore to become the big league Orioles. Many attribute the fire at the old ballpark with sparking interest in having a major league team in Baltimore. In 1970, Riverfront Stadium opens in Cincinnati, Riverfront, one of the many cookie-cutter venues to open in Major League Baseball at that time. And this week in 1988, Chicago agrees to build a new stadium on the south side for the White Sox after owner Jerry Reinsdorf threatened to move the team to Florida. And Thank uh, God the governor got involved, Governor Thompson. Actually, they passed the bill after the deadline, mm -hmm. but uh, they uh, backdated it, so it made the uh, deadline. An old Illinois tradition of stopping the clock. <laughs> we work it that we do way. Things the right way. That's right. We sure do. Happy Fourth of July. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the fireworks, Bill. All right, I'm going to do it. You do the same. Mark Medoran, We Talk Shop. Now, coming up, stay tuned. Can the NHL make a go of it in Las Vegas? Bleacher Report National Hockey Columnist Adrian Dater checks in and he'll break down hockey in Sin City. That's coming up right here on Yahoo Sports Radio. The National Hockey League is rolling the dice literally on Las Vegas. The word coming out that it is expanding into the Las Vegas market, one of the fastest growing, perhaps the fastest growing city in the country. And we're going to visit with Adrian Tater, who is in Las Vegas right now. And uh, he also happens to be the NHL national columnist with the Bleacher Report. Covered the Colorado Avalanche for a number of years with the Denver Post, and we welcome him. Adrian, I'm sure you've watched this very closely. Why the lean toward Las Vegas at this particular time? Well, what turned it, I think, was, um, first of all, they have a great owner uh, in the wings here, and Bill Foley, uh, a very rich man who fell in love with hockey several years ago, apparently, and uh, uh, wanted to go forward with a dream of, of being the first guy to bring hockey to Las Vegas. Bill Foley was a guy who apparently really did his homework on, on everything and, and had the finances to to get this thing really going well with a person like Gary Bettman, the commissioner, who wants uh, you know very much to be in control, but also wants the type of person that I think that he thinks Bill Foley is and, and, and what seems like he really is, is a, a well-heeled guy who uh, will always have the the money to finance this thing. And also, you know, Gary Bettman, since he took over as commissioner in 1993, his really what he's going to be remembered for is expanding the league from 21 to now 31 teams. And a lot of those cities that were expanded to were U.S. markets like like in the Southwest, Phoenix, L.A. I mean, L.A. had a team, but, but Wayne Gretzky moving to L.A. kind of opened things up, you know, San Jose, bigger expansion into California with Anaheim. 
Now we've got Las Vegas. So he's a gambler in a way. There's another pun, right? He, he's <laughs> he's a guy who is, wants to see what will happen with hockey in new places. Well, and to me, that points to three specific things that Las Vegas has going for it. And you hit the first one, money, and they have plenty of it. A very vibrant gambling industry, and that means there's a lot of money floating around. You have good weather, and you have tourism, in addition to the fact that you have 2.1 million people living in the immediate metropolitan area. That sounds like a pretty strong threesome to me. I think the actual statistics on Las Vegas are that, you know, there's 50,000 new customers every three days here. It's a constant churn of people. It's 2 million people that live here. So that's, I think they've sold 14,000 season tickets for the next three years. If, if you buy a ticket to a Las Vegas uh, team for this, you know, for when they start, you have to buy a three-year package. So they've sold 14,000. They've sold out for tickets they, they wanted to. So, there are enough locals, I think, that you can draw from to support a team. And then they're banking. What they're really banking on is the out-of-towners who are going to come here from all 30 other markets. Let's say you're the person from Toronto who really, now you've been hesitant to come to Las Vegas all these years. Maybe you've been on the fence. Aha, now you see a date where the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to be in town in Las Vegas. Now you can book that trip, see your favorite team in a weird place, See Vegas finally uh, for the first time and see your favorite hockey team. I'm sure the NHL, as is the tradition, will hold an expansion draft to help stock the Las Vegas team initially. That means most of the teams in the league are going to lose at least somebody. Uh, And that brings up the old question of how much that affects the overall quality of play. We've heard that for years. Is that likely to be the case here? No, I think this is going to be uh, the best expansion team in quite a while. Uh, when the NHL, when the Las Vegas team, rumored to be the, called the Black Knights, when the Black Knights are formed, they're going to be a really good expansion team potentially. The biggest reason is because of goaltending. Uh, goaltending has changed more than any other position in the NHL by far uh, in the last 20 years. So uh, any any goalie is capable of, that backup goalie on your team is capable, very capable of being number one guy going into the playoffs. You only need to look at the recent Stanley Cup playoffs to, to, to bear that out. Back when David Stern was commissioner of the NBA, an idea of getting a team in Las Vegas was absolutely out of the question. When Adam Silver took over as commissioner, you started hearing hints and statements saying, in effect, well, you know, we're going to revisit all of that now. We're going to revisit gambling and how the NBA handles that. And, of course, Gary Bettman came out of the NBA in one of the NBA's top positions. I wonder if he took a look at that, understood what was going on, and realized, hey, the NHL is my league. We better get there. We better get there first. Does that make sense to you? I think it makes a lot of sense, Bill. I think that's a really prescient point you made. I think it's a really uh, valid point. Uh, If nothing else, Gary Bettman is a competitive guy. He came from the NBA. He's always had the rap of being an NBA guy first from the NHL fans. That's still why you get partly why you get booed every time he goes anywhere in the league. Even though this guy has done so much for the game financially, jobs-wise, and yet he still gets booed. 
partially because people think he's still a basketball guy. I don't think he has any illusions that he's going to outpace the NBA ever in, in ratings in the U- United States. In the end, if Gary Bettman can get to a place like, like Las Vegas first and really make it work, and the other leagues have to uh, trail his breadcrumbs, so to speak, yeah, I think he's got that in mind as a great way to cement his legacy for what he's done for the league. Adrian Dater, the NHL national columnist with the Bleacher Report, he is in Las Vegas, where Sin City is being awarded an NHL franchise, their first major league franchise. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen saying thank you so much for being with us. We have a full day of sports coverage ahead. Stay tuned right here on Yahoo Sports Radio. Radio.